Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we delve into the world of golf course ratings and rankings. But first, this episode is brought to you by the Fried Egg Pro Shop. So I don't know if you've noticed, but spring is on the way. Golf season is on the way. Winter and fake winter alike are almost over. And it's going to be time to think about sun protection. Now, nothing beats sunscreen, obviously. But an additional thing that really helps is a bucket hat, a fried egg bucket hat, to be precise. You can find one in our pro shop at proshop.thefriedegg.com. Good looking bucket hat with the classic fried egg logo, proshop.thefriedegg.com. We have things other than bucket hats, too. So today's episode is all about golf course rankings. And I'm talking about the magazine rankings, the um, top 100, top 200 lists that are put out every couple of years by Golf Digest, Golf Magazine, Golf Week, and other golf publications. These lists have been, I think, enormously influential in shaping tastes about golf course architecture. And frankly, I'm very skeptical about the impact that they've had. I'm not sure it's been healthy. That said, I've never had a super clear idea of how these lists are created, and so I was excited when, last year, a book came out that got into the nitty-gritty of the golf course rating industry, because that's truly what it is, an industry. The book is called The Rating Game, and it's by Jonathan Cummings. John is a longtime golf course rater for Golf Week and a longtime presence in the community of golf course architecture enthusiasts. He He knows everyone. He's seen every course. He is deeply, deeply knowledgeable about how the rating sausage gets made, so to speak. And hats off to him for coming on the podcast and talking to me in spite of my avowed skepticism about the whole deal. So without further ado, here's my conversation with John Cummings. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Tell me about the path from being an enthusiast and a traveler, uh, somebody who's seen a lot of golf courses, to becoming a raider for the magazines. Well, uh, it's a little bit amusing. Um, as part of traveling around, I got a wild hair up my butt to, to write an a annual travel log of what I um, of the courses I'd seen, and I actually started rating them on my own, not associated to any panel, a one to ten rating and kept the database in the back of this thing, an Excel spreadsheet, continually sorted and ranked my my stuff. And I sent this letter out. I wrote it for five years, 30 or 40 pages long. It's just a travel log. And unsolicited, I sent it out to about 100 people, including um, writers and architects and um, media types, and, and, and got responses back. You know, you're a looney tune if you think this course is better than that, and the common kind of things. But anyway, um, at the end of that, Ron Witten got a hold of um, these, or maybe he was a recipient of the letter, I don't remember. Um, and he called up Topsy Sidoroff, who was kind of running Digest at the time, and said, you, know, you got this wacky engineer that's traveling all around doing golf courses down in Washington, D.C. You know, he seems to fit our model. Call him up and see if he wants to be a Digest raider. 
And so she called and I said, sure. And um, they sent a package down to me and I filled it out an application. I'll send it back to her and um, got a frantic phone call a couple of days later. I was, oh my God, we didn't realize you're in Washington, DC. We're oversubscribed in that area. Could you go on a waiting list? Sure, I don't care. <laughs> and Witten, at that time, Brad Klein was just constituting Golf Week's panel. And Witten called Klein up and said, listen, we can't use this guy right now, though, but he, he probably would fit your model. Why don't you call him up? And so Brad Klein called me out of the blue and said, I got 80 people. I'm starting Golf Week's rating panels, 1984, 80, uh, 1994, 95. Uh, would you like to be one of them? I said, sure. And so I became a Golf Week grader. I still have one today. So tell me a little more about this travelogue that you were writing. It sounds like you were writing a letter. Were you printing it out and making copies and then just sending it to various people? All hand done, too. <laughs> you know, go to, to uh, what's it, Kinko's and stuff like that. And Sir these things cost a ton of money. And mail these out <laughs> to all these clowns. Most of them threw them away, too, probably. <laughs> You know, it was, uh, I got responses, uh, plenty of responses too, but most of them were, you're a wacky guy, you know, who would ever listen to what you're doing anyway. But, uh, so I said, it was only five years. It was a lot of work. I mean, it was 250 pages worth of stuff. And, but it was interesting. And the architecture thing that you talk about inside these letters, I not only just write, hey, I went to Kiowa, I played Kiowa, it was an awful day. I didn't like the golf course. I gave it a six. You know, I interjected. Um, in these letters, uh, parenthetically, a little stuff I'd research about the history of rankings, um, the prominent people in the rankings. Um, I actually interviewed people, Doak and Klein and people like this. Um, and that parenthetical part in that became the genesis of the book, The Rating Game. And so that, that stuff that were, were the stuff that was in those five letters, um, I stripped on out and became the, the genesis and the start of The Rating Game. Right. So this was essentially like a blog, you know, but, uh, but, but done <laughs> by hand and, and sent out physically through, uh, through snail mail, the distribution mechanisms have become quite a bit easier to, to use these days, I suppose. Cheaper, but throwaway too. I mean, it took a lot of effort to do something by hand and, and the more you formalize printing, I don't know if you've written books before, but if, if you formalize printing and, and put the effort into it, it, it there's a little bit more integrity in it. To write a book, you got to be passionate about something, and you got to have some depth of knowledge of it. And really, the only thing I have depth of knowledge in, and I've studied and read bunches of books on its architecture, and so that launched it in itself. Now, I was a professional engineer, and I was—I uh, didn't have time to do this thing until I retired. I'm 69 years old and retired four or five years ago, and um, at that time. That really, I've always had back in my mind that those letters could metastasize into some kind of book, if you will. And it took the effort of being retired. I lived in Washington, D.C., and I had a little researcher card at the Library of Congress. And so I just went and spent a year down there with all, every historical magazine on, uh, for Digest, Golf Week, Golf Magazine. And I just did it properly. I spent three days a week down there, eight hours a day, wrote the book. Maybe we could start with what you did your research on, um, it sounds like, in the archives, the history of the golf course rankings. When did golf course rankings start, and when did they really start to gain momentum and purchase in the golf world? A few folks, uh, C.B. McDonald put together a little ranking thing, Lowe did. And so the early 1900s, 1910s, there are a few people that went on out there and tried to uh, – 
to categorize in some way the components of character, of golf course character, and how it's measured. But really, 1966, when Digest jumped into this, and it really was by mistake they got into it, the Digest, uh, it was a big publishing company or a big golf magazine, I guess the biggest golf magazine at the time. Um, and they had the energy and the wherewithal, and uh, they started to get the curiosity uh, of the thing. And that, that really started in the uh, magazine of 73, and then Golf Week were, was 95. And there have been some spinoff others. Uh, Top 100 Golf more recently is a pretty good one, especially if you travel. And there's some Australian ones. There's a South African one. Um, you know, there's their area, regional um, top 100s. But in America, the big three are Golf Week, Golf Digest, Golf Magazine, and Golf Digest pioneered this mid-60s to be the genesis of the modern rating lists. Could you tell me a little bit about the early, I, I suppose, years of the Golf Digest ranking and how it evolved? It was Bill Davis, I think it was, was the original, it may have been an editor or publisher of Digest at the time, he was approached by, I believe it's a real estate company or a real estate effort of some kind, and said, uh, we'd be interested in you putting together a list of golf courses, and we want it to be the hardest golf course, the hardest golf courses in the United States, called the top 200 most difficult golf courses. And at first, I just said they had no interest whatsoever in doing that. And then Bill Davis thought about it for a while and said, you know, it's mildly intriguing. And they published a list, and I think the first list was based only on course uh, rating difficulty, 76.5, uh, wing foot or whatever it was, 75.5, and they just went right on down the U.S. and listed these things. Um, and then they thought that that was the next year. They thought, well, we ought to keep on doing this thing. And so then they constituted a panel, and the panel Herbert Ward Wynn was on the panel. Um, I believe Sam Sneed was on the panel. And this little core of who's who in, uh, in the mid-60s, and they became the executive panel to oversee this. And it, But soon afterwards, they started actually getting volunteers in there, which were called raiders. And uh, those folks are the executive panel or the filters that once the raiders gave the ratings to them, they'd actually fudge them in such a way that could be published for digest. And they put it out every two years since, I think, 68. Now, the next big stage in the evolution of these magazine rankings, as far as I can see, was Tom Doak's entrance into the scene with Golf Magazine. How did he change the process a little bit? How was what he was doing different from what Golf Digest was doing? Um, originally, they didn't even have order. They didn't have rankings. They had clusters of good courses um, and the initial couple lists like that. And Tom was a young kid, and I think he, George Pepper maybe was the was the editor at the time. He contacted Pepper and said, listen, you're going about this all wrong. You need to rank them, you know, literally in order. So what they, they approached him and said, uh, well, Tom, you got such a great idea. Why don't you run the panel? And uh, he had only done one golf course, high point at the time. He was a you know, precocious little, I, I knew him at that time. I've known him for 35 years, just very confident self, I guess. <laughs> Came on in and said, um, instead of a categories-based met, uh, method like Digest was starting to formulate, we wanted to put some kind of numeric system, and it was an A, B, C, D, E, F, that related to what that ranking, if you as a raider, Garrett said that that was an A golf course, you were telling um, Golf Magazine that it should be ranked in the one to 10. Mm -hmm. You said it was a C golf course, it's 50 to 100, or there was some scale that was related to that. But all kind of now he was tying that into actual rankings. And Digest did not do that. 
Digest assigned you, and again, I'm not sure the year they did this, but it was pretty early. They assigned you as a Digest rater to go out and give um, ratings on categories, and the executive board mixed these in such a way that they came up with the rankings. And Brad was much, much later. Brad was Brad's didn't come on until '95 was the first Golf Week list. Right. So Bradley Klein took over the the Golf Week list, and then well, take it over. He, started, he he inaugurated it, right? And so, how was what he was doing then different again from Golf Digest and Golf Magazine? Each one of them had their little foothold, and what Golf Week did is there was a pitcher in Atlanta. He pitched for the AAA um, the Braves. Um, he's probably still a panelist. I don't know, but he came to Klein when Klein was forming this panel or forming the idea of a panel, and said, "Listen." Digest and Magazine are taking old traditional golf courses in the golden age of architecture like that, and they're mixing it with these modern Basio, Nicholas, highly engineered type of golf courses, and they're really apples and oranges. Golf Week would have their own foothold in this whole ranking things if they segregated the two of them. And that's what they start off with, so the top 100 classical list that's up till 1960. It was kind of an arbitrary number, but um, and then 1960 was the modern um, architect and and so that's their foothold and then they also well 10 15 years ago they also took that expanded both lists from the top and the top 200 and so effectively you're getting 400 um top 400 golf courses every time you see one of those lists come out and golf week and that exposes some wonderful wonderful tradition new england courses that no one will ever hear of like that and so it's a very uh, it's a good idea it's good advertising for golf week it's these little clubs are really enamored by the fact that they're they're on these lists and digest and magazine don't have that hmm. interesting so uh in, in order to have a list that's that long that that includes that many courses you need a, a fair amount of raiders and the the issue of recruiting raiders and assessing raiders is a really interesting one that you take up in your book M maybe we could start by talking about what you perceive to be the differences between the raider panels at golf digest golf magazine and golf week how are the bodies of raiders different at those three publications i, I think they have distinct qualities. I think Digest always is proud of the fact that their raiders are, um, they're not architects, they're not industry people, and they're low handicaps. And they're supposed to go back and, and evaluate a golf course from the back tees. Um, and so this is a very special group of accomplished golfers that now are going out and view from only that lens the golf course. Magazine, on the other hand, Rand Morrison now runs Golf Magazine, you probably know this. What Rand has is 80 to 100 luminaries in the golf world, and these folks are very well-traveled, no question about it, and they have a small ballot. They only have, I don't know, four or 500 courses worldwide that they're supposed to see. So they are, they are more who's who in golf. I mean, Nicholas Palmer was a, a panelist at one time, and Jan Stevenson, and uh, Weisskopf, and um, Jones Brothers, you know, you can run it on down. So they were getting the cream of the crop up there. Golf Week, on the other side, is the pedestrian uh, panel. They've got A to Z, they've got couples, they've got people who are good golfers, bad golfers. And frankly, they have, it's more of a, a, a panel of 800 people that, that really like to go out and see golf courses. But their criteria, their, their qualifications, uh, you know, 
are not as as looked at so hard. It's more of their willingness to go out there and see golf courses, which is a very important parameter on a good art on a good uh, raider. There's a lot of interesting issues in there. Now, I think you agree with me on this, what I'm about to say, but the handicap requirement, the low handicap requirement that Golf Digest has strikes me as absurd on its face. I have no idea what being an expert golfer has to do with having insight into architecture. And so why, why does, can you speak to this? Why, why does Digest um, have this requirement? Well, you have to interview them, uh, <laughs> get Witten on here and tell you, uh, I, it was a wrong approach. The only, in my opinion, the only thing that would constitute the best raider out there is one who travels a lot, sees a lot of different golf courses. So when he sees a new course, he kind of knows where this goes in his own personal ranking. Think of a deck of cards where Pine Valley's on the top and the Muni up the road is on the bottom, if you will, of the courses that you've seen. When you see a new golf course like that, the whole thing is to slide that in, that card in where the courses above it are better and the courses below it are, are worse. And I think the digest and their method of doing this thing is flawed. Uh, they should look at people who see a lot of golf courses and not people who play the game well. And then the other thing is they've got a criteria system there, which I think is just completely flawed. And there's a chapter in the book about categories, and I think Ron Witten is not wildly pleased about that chapter, frankly. <laughs> well, maybe we could take that uh, that side road for a second. What What is, uh, in essence, your objection to using categories to determine the quality of a golf course? Now, Golf Digest, you spoke to this a little bit earlier, but just to be clear, Golf Digest has what number of categories is it? They change it all the time. Yeah, I can never keep track. But it's it, it's you know different components of golf course excellence, and and you can imagine what they are basically. The one that really sticks in my craw is ambiance, which you know I have no idea what that means. I think it has something to do with tradition, but for some reason Bethpage Black scores super low on ambiance, and I'm like, wait a minute, doesn't Bethpage Black have amazing tradition? But yes, there are these different categories that Golf Digest uses. Your objection to them is not so much that they're the wrong categories, but just that the category system itself is prone to error. You know, if I ask you to rank courses, you, Mr. Panel, you individual and a whole panel like that, why in the hell would I want to introduce an intermediate step in there? All it does is obfuscate the end product. What I really want is to get a bunch of raters to give me their rankings and for me to come out somehow merge those rankings together in one list and publish a rankings list. But when you have a bunch of numbers in there, one, I don't believe they can publish those or they can, these raiders have the ability to resolve these numbers, these 7.28 out to these decimal points. It's, it's ludicrous, but they like to keep this. They think they're in the science world doing that. And I think it's just humorous. But I would take the whole category thing. It's an unnecessary step. It introduces error into the thing. You have bias error. You have resolution error. You have all the simple little measurement errors that um, that happen when you make a measurement anywhere in the world. And um, it, it's something that should be cast aside. And the great evidence that I believe it doesn't work is they change it all the time. They're continually fiddling with it after 60 years of this panel, 50 years, 60 years. And uh, if that's not evidence that, you know, something's flawed. Right. Yeah. So maybe we could get back to the issue of raiders, who raiders are, who's able to be a raider. So who in your mind, what kind of person makes the ideal raider? 
Now, if I can be biased at someone older like myself um, who's retired and has the ability to get in a car or get in an airplane and get a curiosity to do that and actually travel and see a number of golf courses. It's, that also has some financial means because none of these panels, they don't pay raters like that. And so people dr- travel maniacally and they pull those travel fees out of their pocket. And I think that the best raters are the ones that have seen the broadest spectrum of golf courses, classical courses, modern courses, geographically diverse courses, because now they have the best thing when they see another course to weigh it against. And really, that was, that's what it's all about is if I've only seen 20 courses around my, my local area and I get a Raider card and I'm so happy and I run on out and see Cog Hill, I think it's a 10. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And um, this is why the, the best Raiders, and if I were to formulate my own panel, I wouldn't care about anything other than how broad a number of courses they've seen, how willing they are to travel and see other courses. And that really would be, and to some extent, to seeing, to seeing some great golf courses. So they have to weigh Augusta's hard to get on and Pine Valley and Cypress and all these. But if they've seen things that they, they've seen great golf courses, they have some barometer to weigh what they just saw and course up the street against it. And that's important. But see a lot of golf courses is the most important thing, willing to travel, have the means to travel. Right. It, it, it makes good sense that a Raider should have a broad range of experience to draw on and has seen a lot of courses so that they don't go, you know, see a course that, that might be somewhat mediocre and, and think, Hey, it's the best course I've ever seen. So it's a 10. But of course the, the problem that's introduced here is I think a significant one that in order to be a Raider, you have to not only travel, but have the means to travel and have the time to travel, which to an extent, limits the range of people that can be raiders. And so what ends up getting raided is the tastes of a specific subset of golfers, a specific social class of golfers, really. And so how can magazines address that problem? Or is that just inevitable? I'm not sure I can answer that thing. I mean, if you don't have means to get around, and I'm asking you to go around and see golf courses, and you can't afford to go there, it's... I, that's a problem I'm not sure how you can solve. You know, a college kid gets out of college. He's got a fascination about golf course architecture. He's been starving for four straight years. He's got a $20,000 a year job. How in the world can he get around it? You know, how can he go to some of these outings, these um, these architectural summits that they, the magazine sometimes asks for? I don't know how to solve that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't either. And, and you know, I, I think it really is a problem because, you know, Raiders are predominantly coming from kind of one class of golfers, but their opinions are polled and then presented as somewhat objective, I suppose. That's the framing of these lists. These are the 100 greatest golf courses in America. It's not the 100 greatest courses according to this particular band of the golfing population. No, these are these are the greatest courses. I mean, the, the issue with this that I see is that, you know, when people are forming their impressions about what makes greatness in a golf course, often they go to these lists. I know I did when I was a kid and I got an issue of Golf Digester. My my dad got it and it was tremendously exciting to see these top 100 golf courses ranked. And it was really formative in my impressions about what made a great golf course. 
And what made a great golf course, according to those Golf Digest rankings, was not only a hard course that might appeal to a low handicap, as we discussed earlier, but predominantly ultra-exclusive private clubs or really expensive daily fee courses. There just weren't a whole lot of courses that struck me as being very accessible to me. And so I began to think of greatness as something that was just out of reach or, or something that potentially I could aspire to later in my life, but it wasn't really connecting with my, my own, you know, existence as, as a golfer. And I was fairly privileged and I'm not sure that this problem can be solved, but from what you've seen, is it something that the people who run these rankings are concerned about that, you know, they might be presenting the tastes of a pretty specific set of the golfing population as, as being authoritative. No, (laughs) (laughs) I think the thing that drives them are um, advertising. These lists sell. And um, that's the number one thing about it. Real estate to some extent. Oh, and travel too, just like you just said is, Mm -hmm. When I go to the best uh, golf courses in, in the state, the best you can play in a state, um, and I, mean, I know I'm traveling to Missouri or something like that, I go down these lists or, and I say, oh, gosh, I can get on this one, this one, and this one. And, you know, it kind of defines, if I'm going on a golf trip, it defines where I want to focus my efforts. It's on the highest quality courses, assuming I can get access to them. But as far as a, a niche, exposing just a small niche, not one of these magazines is going to say that. They're always going to say, you know, this represents everybody. <laughs> but uh, I don't I, Like you said, I don't think you ever could solve that in any way, shape, or form uh, unless the magazine, you've had a very deep pocketed owner of a magazine, he underwrites this whole thing and sends these raiders out and signs them courses and they, they don't pay anything like that, which is not going to happen. But in, in fact, uh, as you alluded to, m- many raiders pay to be on these panels. I don't know if all do. I know they do at Golf Digest. They do Golf Week, too. Um, uh, half of them do. It's a very bizarre thing. The, there's a legacy membership of uh, two, three hundred of them, I think, that are veterans that do not pay, but the majority do. And I think Milstein has actually talked to Rand about um, monetizing um, Golf Magazine. And I, you have to check on this because I don't know that this is true, but I think they came back and said, we have a hundred panelists. You know, what kind of money are you going to make on this? And he realized that that was kind of, kind of fiction, but digest is very much money. They followed golf. Week was the first to do that. And they followed golf week and they really monetize it a thousand to get in and two fifty a year with 2000 Raiders. I mean, they're generating a million bucks with their revenue out of this panel. Yeah, there, there's there's perhaps a realization that this is a kind of exclusive golf club, <laughs> that the the rating panel itself is functioning in in somewhat that way. There there's access obviously to a tremendous number of courses. There are. Yeah, but you know it's also we got now what three thousand um, no thirty two hundred uh, United States Raiders now. And these poor courses are getting inundated with Raiders. And at one time there weren't that many out there before golf week was around. I just had a panel of four or 500 and magazine was 60 or 80 people. And so it was much rarer. They got the knock on the door. Can I play the golf course? And now they get them all the time. Some of these courses, how many Raiders do you guys have? <laughs> because they're getting so many phone calls. Go to a Florida golf course in the middle of winter like this when the Raiders in the Northeast are snowbound. They come down here and they knock on every door they can. Oh my goodness. Something I was interested to find out in your book, something that I didn't really put together before or think about before is that Raiders themselves are getting assessed. 
So what are the ways in which you think a raider should be judged once he or she is part of a rating panel? What constitutes good performance on the part of a raider? Certainly the number one thing. Uh, I know that Dean Knuth has kind of formalized the um, policing of his panel on Golf Digest. Um, Golf Week, probably less so. They're in, it's an informal, but they've got, it's an online, and they'll look at performance. And it's got to be the number one thing is, are you active? You know, if you have a Raider card and you spend a year and you didn't rate a golf course like that, you know, hello, um, are you still interested in this? And so you write a check for $250, you never, each year, you never attend any of the events, you never, you know, heard of now that's got to be the number one thing. You've got to actively participate in this thing or thank you very much, we'll find someone else. And, and there are other things that you, know, you have to watch their numbers too because if you imagine a bell curve of 100 votes around a golf course like this and you see a person that's way outside this consistently, outside high or low, um, that's a bias and that's a warning bell. And, and we have the wherewithal in these magazines with websites and with software, if you will, to police this a little bit and have warning flags come up when someone is voting way outside a range that's reasonable like that. And that should be recognized quickly by a panel and the person should be given a little education and, and, and say, hey, listen, you're way outside here, the rest of your fellow raiders. And um, that's a policing that can be done and is reasonable. And I'm particularly interested in the bias piece of this. Where would you locate the difference between a valid variety of opinion and bias? In other words, at what point does somebody's individual opinion, which might be different from other people's opinions, become an unuseful bias? We got to identify it first. If, again, you use a little bit of, of statistics and you look at uh, if this one golfer goes to uh, Donald Ross golf course, which he loves old time architects. It is every single one of them are high from the rest of his brethren that are voting for it. That is a bias, a clear bias. Constantly, if he hates Fazio, then every one of them is low. Like that, this is a bias that's not only recognizable, it's also measurable. I can measure the bias from the central number of the mean, if you will, and actually calculate a number that he's biased by. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's pretty much a numeric thing that, that you can identify and you can call out on this person. What, do, what if you went to a raider who was overrating, say, Tom Fazio courses compared to other raiders that, where the, the scores for Tom Fazio courses for this particular raider were much higher than normal? And you went to this raider and the raider just said back to you, well, I think Tom Fazio is the best golf architect in the world. I think he's way better than everybody else. That's my opinion. Then what would the response be to that? Well, it, it, you can't contaminate these numbers. I mean, and, and if you are contaminating those numbers with known bias, I, as if I were policing these things, I'm going to get rid of your ratings, not put them into the, the mix, if you will, or get rid of you. Um, <laughs> you know, if, it's, if there's clear bias, there's bi all kinds of bias. There's people who've told me before that, that, they, that there's no good golf course that is um, been built by a living architect. And so all the great golf courses are by dead architects. And uh, right there, that's a bias or, you know, how can you work with that? He goes out and sees a modern golf course and gives it a three. <laughs> you don't care what it is. It can be, you know, Whistling Straits or uh, Kiowa, I don't care. Dream song. 
But anyway, that's that's a, a clear bias. But there are others. There's bias towards geography. There's bias towards seaside. Some folks, you know, go to a Lynx golf course and they just they melt. They're so in love with it. I don't care what it is. It's just they're at the sea and they're in Ireland and they're um, they're playing golf and, um, and everything's nirvana. And those can all be identified if you watch, if you study just a little bit on the distribution of the scores of a person. Your scores, if you are a Raider, shouldn't be like, it's not lockstep with everybody giving the same number, but within reason, they should be distributed around a central number for any given golf course. And if you're bearing way outside of that, that's identifiable and it's policeable or correctable. I, I would be the guy who melts in front of any seaside golf course. I'll, I'll, I'll admit to that. So um, the, the, the serious question, though, is, is there a danger when you're policing bias like this, which is an understandable thing to do if you're running a ranking panel? I mean, this is an obvious thing to do. If somebody's just crazy different than everybody else with their numbers, then you've got to address it. But at the same time, does that policing of bias risk developing a herd mentality, as you refer to it in your book? Does it end up encouraging, incentivizing raiders, in fact, to be conformists, because, of course, anybody who's a member of these rating panels wants to keep their membership on the panel. There, there are significant privileges that go along with it. Is there a danger that, that working against the bias in the way that you're talking about it encourages people to try to settle around a kind of mean number for each course and, and therefore produce kind of predictable rankings? I think there, there is a little bit of danger if you have that in very well-traveled, well-versed golf raters who have a big spread of numbers. If they never give tens, nines, and eights because they've never seen one, then they're biased on, on one side of this. But I think, generally speaking, the small distributions that you see within the bell curve of various raters for a given golf course is a rich enough variation um, and an important enough variation to give me a solid average like that, that I can get rid of these outliers and I don't need them. And I don't, they're more harmful than they possibly can be good. I'm, I'm kind of searching for an answer here. I can see what you're saying, but I'm, I still think that they're more harm than good. Um, these people have are big outliers. And, and the last thing I want is golf course ABC to be ranked in the 20th in the country. And because I've had a couple of outliers in there, it goes to the 90th the next year or some radical change. And that's unrepresentative of what should happen. These things could, should move unless a redesign has happened or something like that. They should move within you no know, small amounts, really, especially the classical side for golf week. Mm. Yeah, uh, perfectly understandable and logical answer. So in general, keeping in mind that the three major magazines that we've been talking about, Golf Digest, Golf Magazine, and Golf Week, keeping in mind that those three institutions do golf course ranking very differently, what would you change about the way magazines conduct rankings today? Like Tom Doak says, the best rate ranking in the world is for me to ask Garrett to rank his top 100, and he writes them on down in order. I can argue with you that you're, you're crazy. You know, one is... B is so much better than C, and you've got to reverse and all that. But what I can't argue about is your um, the methodology. The methodology, it's 100% subjective. That's all it is. The, there is no methodology. It's your opinion. And Doak always says that's the best thing. The problem is that I worried about as I was writing this book, and I didn't have it when I got halfway through the book, the solution. It took me a while. Is Garrett's top 100 list, John Cummings' top 100 list, 
Next, 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 next person is merge these together laterally into one list. And I didn't know the math involved in that. As it turns out, I got some help from two nephews who both getting doctorates in math, so they're pretty smart kids. And they said there's a there's a method that was discovered 300 years ago in France that's a voting thing that's um, called pairwise comparison, and I'm not going to go into it. But anyway, what it does, it very effectively merges these things together into one list. So what I would do for all three magazines is I would use a system. It's easy to do with computers now. It's simple. Uh, I would use this kind of thing, and that would eliminate all this bias, all the air in it. It wouldn't matter if you've got a guy who, you know, put Fazio's courses, the one through 10 on there. Really, you've got way too many of these lists together. You're merging laterally. And the beauty is you wouldn't have all these resolution errors, all of the simple math errors of once you get into the measurement game. And what you come out with is a composite merged lateral rank list of all my panelists. And I think that to me seems like the best method to reduce air and maximize the subjectivity of this whole thing, which is really what you want. It, it should be said that that a, a fair portion of your book is taken up with considering this question of what is the most rigorous way of retaining the representation of a panel's opinion as purely as possible. And, and, and you go through these various ways in which that community opinion does tend to get distorted through the methodologies that magazines use. And I certainly would have, you know, no, no ability really to object to the methodology that you settle on. It, it seems quite thoughtfully arrived at. I suppose my question starts at the very beginning of it, though. If we say that the ideal ranking is an individual's ranking, then why do we do these lists? Have you ever thought about whether we should be doing this at all? <laughs> Magazines have published Arnold Palmer's Top 100, or, you know, Jack Nicholas's. I don't know that's true, but I, I, I got to believe you could search and find that somewhere. Sure. I'm not sure that has the poll. A reader will look and say, Jack Nicholas thinks Pebble Beach is the number one course in the world. I, I, I believe that's true. Um, and and he, that's a rarity. Very few people would rank that as number one in the world for a bunch of reasons. But, um, you know, I, and it's just one person's opinion. I think it's just not as interesting as having a panel formed. It sounds like there is a Congress of uh, folks going out and they're definitively, you know, determining what these, this annual ranking list would, would be. And I, I don't know. I just get the sense that the the, the the herd of raiders out there is is got more pull than just an individual. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I, uh, that's just my opinion, and I'm not sure I'm even right. But no, I think you're definitely right that that these panels, certainly in the way that the lists are presented, as authoritative as they are, this is this well-respected magazine's list of the best courses in the world or the best courses in America or what have you. Certainly they have more pull. Certainly they have a huge impact, but I sometimes wonder what their impact has been. And I, and I wonder how it's changed the golf course industry, the way golf courses get built and the way golf courses get designed. Well, it, it sure could. There, there are owners, and I'm sure you know this too. There are owners that hire a Tony architect like that. And they say, first thing, build me a top one on a golf course. Right. Like they're, magic ingredient that this poor architect is going to go out there and, you know, he's got to get a great piece of land first to have something to work with. It's, it's a tough question. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what these architects and owners in your hypothetical scenario are dealing with is 
trying to divine what the opinions of these panels might be. And, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's too bad if architects and owners are thinking, ha- have that thought at the front of their mind that we want to be a top 100 golf course, because to me, it's not entirely clear how you get there. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what, what constitutes a, a top 100 golf course. Have you ever had anybody ask you like, how can I, how can I make this a top 100 golf course? Have you ever had an owner kind of put that question to you in some form? Not that say, but it's very uncomfortable. And Raiders have this for owners after they host you in a place to sit you down and say, now, what can I do to make this golf course better? And theoretically, a Raider is supposed to be able to say, I had deficiencies when I saw the character of this, this, and this out there. And I saw very positive things with this, this, and this out there, landforms, um, conditioning, you know, the, the, the various thing one looks at when you, when you determine character of a golf course. You know, you're, you're supposed to not piss them off for one thing and you know oh i you know this is a piece of junk i can't stand <laughs> like that you so you got to be somewhat diplomatic on this thing too but also even if you really really play the course many times had a good sense of the golf course uh, you wouldn't have the same sense of another raider that's coming in there and who might see positives and negatives slightly different and give this guy other information this the, an owner sat a person down and then sat me down before and, and asked these questions like that probably doesn't understand this and probably shouldn't ask that question. He should ask, all right, you, you should go to the magazine and say, you've seen, you, we've hosted 20, 30 Raiders. What are their comments? I want to know their comments of those. And that's a fair thing to ask. And some of them may be wacky. Some of them may be you know, inaccurate. Um, and others might give them interest. Oh, my gracious. I didn't realize that four or five of these Raiders took issue with X, Y, Z. I mean, that can't change a golf course. They're not going to reroute a golf course because a bunch of Raiders come in there and, you know, gave it a poor rating or something like that. But, um, but there may be individual things that they can address, uh, sight lines. There might be a barn and, um, there, there may, um, there may be a Ferris wheel in the distance and people don't like it. So grocery trees and <laughs> mask it out or something. See, barns and Ferris wheels sound, sound great to me by all means, golf course owners. Let's, uh, let's have more barns and Ferris wheels, maybe not in the middle of the fairway. So, I mean, I think that one thing that, that we could agree on is that these rankings really aren't going anywhere. They're, they're a big business at this point. They're, you know, every year I'd have to imagine that each of these magazines, one of the most popular issues is their top 100 golf courses issue. And so, you know, you've been in this, uh, in this community for a while. You, you've seen a lot of different versions of, of the rate ranking business. And I think you've probably seen golf course tastes shift over time. Have you seen that? Have you sensed that, that tastes are beginning to shift and, and how would you describe that trend? Oh, sure. The, the, the fair boys, the Gil Hans and the Tommy Dokes and the, um, now, uh, Andrew Green is, you know, a new one that's coming on up and people are enjoying going back to the roots. These courses that built yesterday, look like they've been there a hundred years they're getting very highly ranked. Uh, and in fact, um, it has been proposed informally, internally to Golf Week that the classical and modern bifurcation of these two lists should now have a third one called the Renaissance and the, the back to the roots or something like that. And where you draw the line, I don't know. 1996 Sand Hills or something is, is a turning point that a lot of people point out. But there are a few courses before that that people would want to put on that kind of list, you know, the, the, the second golden age or whatever you call it. 
the second golden age because the first, the intermediate, the modern one is engineering. It's the highly, you know, the Calusa Pines and Shadow Creek are great examples of just pure engineering. They're marvelous places, absolutely marvelous, but they are constructed completely, every, you know, square inch of it. And then you get the other things like Crenshaw sang at the first green at Sand Hills like that. It cost $300 and it was grass seed for the green. You know, they threw $300 for the grass seed down, the hole was finished. Now, I think he's exaggerating a little bit, but also kids, a great example is Mammoth Dunes and his Gamble Sands there. These are marvelous golf courses that are highly playable. They're relatively easy. Instead of making the hardest golf course in the world is the goal of these folks, getting back to something that plays a little easier, more friendly, bold um, landing areas, bold greens where missed shots are cycled back towards the um, your target line and feel good golf courses, if you will. And that's another class of the modern golf course. that's also kind of a renaissance too and kids leading it. And I think I'd be very surprised if that isn't a little bit of a movement now. They're very successful for one thing, but they get great reviews People go there, they, they want to go back, they feel great about Gamble Sands, they shot their first 78, and you know, oh my God, it, you know, it's Nirvana. Yeah. So No, and it, it's an extraordinarily smart move. You know, it's so savvy on the part of Kid, because people do feel wonderful when they go to those courses. And they, they, they come away saying, not only was that a beautiful course, and there were some cool strategic scenarios and all that kind of stuff, but also they usually played well. <laughs> you know, they, and I wonder if that's going to prompt a change you know, it, certainly golf magazine and golf week are, are well prepared to adjust to this emerging trend in, in golf course architecture and to give these kinds of courses high ratings, but golf digest may, might be a little held back by their resistance to scoring category, which is another category of golf digests that people often object to kind of wondering why that should be a factor in determining the greatness of a golf course. I wonder if golf digest at some point is going to be forced to get rid of that category or to reinvent it. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, John Cummings' book is called The Rating Game. You can get it wherever you get books. One thing before you go, though, the Fried Egg 2021 event schedule is about to start. Signups are currently live in our online pro shop for the Boomerang at Soul Park in Ojai, California. Wonderful course and a great location. And this coming Friday, you'll be able to sign up for a new batch of events. Just follow the announcements in our newsletter or on Twitter. 